Welcome to this episode of Neurospiced, Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia's podcast. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land this podcast is being recorded from, and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. This episode features Hannah, she, her. During this episode, Hannah shares her experience of restrictive eating disorder and late autism identification. Hannah also expresses how factors related to autism influence her eating disorder as well as her experiences with the healthcare system. She also provides advice on what can be done to improve. We would like to remind you that this episode discusses topics that may be distressing for some. For example, this episode discusses inpatient treatment of anorexia involving a nasogastric tube. Therefore, we would like to emphasize the importance of accessing support services if required. For example, the Butterfly Foundation um, helpline, which can be reached at 1-800-334673 or call 000 in an emergency. Hi, Anna. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Can you tell us a bit more about your journey discovering your new divergence? Oh, yes. So my mum kind of like had an inkling when I was very young, um, but that was the 90s. So there wasn't much information out there. Like the internet was, I don't know what was happening with the internet. Um, and like, even if she had read papers, it would have all said, like very like male oriented, you know, research. Mm -hmm. um, so then she kind of, I don't know, she got busy being a mum. And then um, a few friends would sometimes make little comments, just but just kind of joking, like if I was going off about a special interest. Um, and then one friend said something. I was just having a chat with my housemate and then he suddenly stared at me and was like, are you autistic? <laughs> um, and I was like, what? Um, and then we had a bit of a chat about that. And then he was like, oh, no, nah, but you you do eye contact. And I was like, what? I didn't, like, I didn't know that was an autism thing. Yeah. And so then I was like, but I don't. Like, do you look in people's eyes? And he was like, yeah. And then he was confused because he thought I didn't do eye contact. And I was like, no, I mean, I'm looking at your nose, looking at your cheeks. Like, I never yeah. look in people's eyes. Yeah, it was anyway. the same. And then people think I, I, I look them in the eyes and I actually don't. But it's right. subtle enough that I don't realise it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd fooled everyone and I thought that everyone else was the same. And then I was talking to, like a few years later, I was talking to a friend from school who was going through the like diagnosis process themselves mm -hmm. and they were explaining to me the differences between male and female presentation. And I, we were at a party, so it was all a bit kind of chaotic, but I said, oh, like I've kind of wondered sometimes if I was, but I feel empathy and like that's, that's yeah. a thing like autistic people don't and this friend was like oh such a stigmatizing stereotype that needs to go <laughs> oh my gosh yes um anyways so this friend was like oh no that's actually a myth and then I think they were going to explain it some more but then we got distracted because we were at a party so then we didn't talk about it anymore and then we learned at some point about the crossover in genes uh with eating disorders and autism mm -hmm. so I started to wonder again but then I don't know didn't look into it and then in 2020 when 
like we all had a bit of time on our hands. I started to look into it again and I messaged this friend who had since been diagnosed by Tony Atwood. And so then they sent me heaps of information and links to YouTube things and blogs and stuff and the, the questionnaire thing. Um, so I did that and yeah, I started reading stuff and everything I was reading and watching I related to. So then I talked to mum and dad about it and mum like got researching because she loves that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually we found someone had recommended this psychiatrist who was apparently really good at diagnosing girls and apparently knew lots about eating disorders. So I went and had an appointment with him, realised that he doesn't actually know much about eating disorders, but I was like, that's fine. Like I'm here for an autism assessment, not help with eating disorder. So then we had an assessment with him and this other, what was he, a neuropsych about six months later. Um, but it was, <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing and it was very rushed <laughs> and they were trying to like hurry us through all of our answers. Um, so it's like a two hour assessment and like mum wanted to make sure they had all the information and they were like cutting her off. Okay. Um, and yeah, that's not very helpful. No, I think they, they were running behind and I think we were just before their lunch break. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then five weeks later I got my report saying I wasn't autistic. Um, but the stuff on the report was just showed how little they knew. So like there was that some same question that was like a ticker box question that was, um, do you feel, do you think you're a sympathetic person? And I'd said yes. And they'd put that in the unlikely to be autistic box. And I was like, but this is like, blah. like we've known for 20 years that that's not true. And yeah. And especially, especially considering that there is like a lot of research now that's being done about masking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they'd, what was it? Oh, they were like, oh, Hannah's got, um, you know, a group of very close friends who she enjoys seeing. That means she's more, you know, more neurotypical when we told them that almost all of my close friends are neurodivergent, which is just like, yes, should that's show the double empathy direction. problem. That's the double empathy problem. Yeah. Yeah. You get to connect more with people who have the same predispositions as you. So obviously if you have friends, then if they're neurodivergent, it means that you're likely neurodivergent as well. Yeah, exactly. They just had it's no logic. idea. Yes, yes. Anyway, um, and there were just some other weird things in the report that showed they hadn't been listening. Like I said, I'd been seeing this psych at a place and then she got another job, so she left. And on the report, it said Hannah's been seeing a psychiatrist, a psychologist at this place who then left because of left on maternity leave. And I was like, what? I never said that. Where did you get that from? Anyway, so... Everyone I spoke to just said, um, like, try for another assessment because um, you're a girl, so it's probably going to take at least two. So then a bit under a That's year later. Sad. Yeah. Sad. Yes. A bit under a year later, my just the psych I'd been seeing for my eating disorder um, said that she could do an assessment because she'd been on panels before. Mm-hmm. And she's never done them by herself, but she was like, I mean, I, I guess I could. Like, I've been seeing her for eight months, so she knew me well as opposed to going in for like a two-hour assessment or whatever yeah a bit under a year ago um she diagnosed me um yay congratulations yeah thank you it was such a happy day and it was it was march 31st so i was really happy it was just before autism month started yeah um so i was really excited Uh, how how did getting validation from the perspective of of having someone uh, in professional capacity tell you that you're you're actually autistic how did that make you feel? 
How, um, how did that help or not help in, in which ways? It was so helpful. It just it was so validating and just so many things I've been beating myself up about for years. I felt that I could accept and I didn't have to try and change them anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I'd known for at least a year, I knew that when I, if I got an official diagnosis, I knew I would cry because like just tears of happiness. Yep. And I did, but then I wasn't expecting like the next week or so, I would just, I'd be, you know, doing whatever, cooking or whatever, and I would just start sobbing uncontrollably and it would and it would last for a few minutes and then and then I'd be fine. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Yes. Same for me when I realized I was autistic. I'm like, ah, oh, my entire like existence makes sense now, finally. And yeah. then you're super happy about it, but then you question everything because your self-concept gets threatened in a way because you you build your your self-concept on what you know you are uh, based on what people tell you in in most cases and and not knowing I was autistic meant I built an entire self-concept on on things that were not necessarily me especially given masking so you have to question your entire like self actually and and rebuild it based on the knowledge you have now (laughs) yeah like oh I'm doing this thing like I'm doing this thing because I've been told to not because I actually feel comfortable and like I'm still discovering stuff which I know I imagine you are as well yeah yeah it's uh I don't know if it will ever end actually (laughs) especially given the 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 discrimination that you go through as well at school and things like that and you know you're different but you just don't know why or how to address that and it brings so much issues mental health wise yeah I I think and the thing is that like not knowing what's wrong I remember feeling that there was something wrong, especially in yeah. high school, but I didn't know how to talk to it, anyone about it because, like, I didn't want to say, oh, I feel wrong, but I don't know. Like, I felt that would just be such an awkward thing to say because I was mm-hmm. already worried about being awkward to, <laughs> to be like, oh, something's wrong, but I don't know what, like, yeah. And sometimes you try to tell people how you feel about things and, like, in terms of sensory perception as well, and then people just don't believe you. They think that you're um, making things up up or that you're just overreacting and things like that when it's actually just the way you are and yeah and you need help yeah yeah I'm and I'm having trouble knowing what's normal and what's not especially with sensory stuff and anxiety (laughs) um because it's really hard because you can't see what's going on inside someone's head like someone's got a broken leg it's like well yes you're going to have trouble walking up those stairs but you know yeah with sensory stuff or yeah especially like things as simple as um, I feel like I'm being like stabbed in the eyes when I speak when I hear balloon popping and sounds yeah. can trigger extreme reactions for me and then people just disbelieve it. They just don't understand how it feels like and then they, they just invalidate you and then eventually you, you come to a point where you don't know who you are anymore because all of your internal mechanisms are just invalidated one after the other. Yeah, do you have a lot of sensory stuff? Yeah, especially with sounds like ticking clocks and things like that. It's so distracting. I just I just feel extremely overwhelmed by those things. Yeah, okay. Yeah, definitely something to be aware of, especially if you're a healthcare professional. Um <laughs> so what's what's been your experience with eating disorders and disordered eating? Did you have much body image issues associated with it or can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a lot. A lot of it was based on body image. I guess I, I had those thoughts for a long time, like ever since I was quite young. And 
I mean, because it's just, you know, everywhere in society. And I guess it it was kind of part of my self-concept kind of thing. And I got quite sick when I was 10-ish. I got chronic, well, we found out later it was chronic fatigue syndrome, which like in hindsight was probably just a real delayed autistic shutdown. But yeah, anyway, burnout, so, burnout, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's the one. Um, yeah, and I had that throughout high school as well. So my marks and stuff were dropping. And that had always been like the things I was proud of in life was yeah. like doing well at school and music. Um, mm-hmm and my marks were dropping and so then I was like and also feeling really insecure um at school and so then I was like well this is what I have to feel good about and be good at and like they Mm. were both gone and the only other thing I I can think of which is sad that that people had complimented me on was being thin so I was like well I'll just be really good at that yeah. So yeah, and that just like gradually happened. I went on a music tour with my school for a few weeks and just being around other people, other like teenage girls all the time was really hard. I found myself comparing myself mm-hmm. to them all the time. So then when I got back from tour, I, I was like, right, gonna lose weight, got more strict with I didn't I didn't make huge cuts to my food, but yeah, small things. More like I became very aware of it and I started going for walks every yeah. afternoon which I'd never really done before um and then after a term of that mum just yelled at me one day because she'd noticed what I was doing and then I started to feel better after that but then about I don't know five months later or something I started restricting again because I'd noticed a bit of fat on me um mm-hmm. and then I was in year 12 then and things just kind of got worse because I was really stressed and you know sometimes would miss a meal because of I don't know something I had to do at lunch and I don't know, I could, um, yeah, was exercising more and more and eating less. And then the next year, mum and dad knew it was happening. They were onto it pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's good, I just, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, didn't think so at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I just had to get more and more sneaky. And I had this thing about, like, making myself cold. Yeah. And so they would make me wear tights to school in winter, and I just took them off as soon as I got to school and froze the rest of the day. And then it was the next, the year after school, I took a gap year and um, I, uh, when was it? It was just after I turned 18, pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. I, my GP said that I had met criteria for a forced hospital admission. Um, okay. She'd yeah. been wanting to make me go in before, but I kept on saying no. And then. Um, I can relate to that as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then she weighed me one day and she was like, well, now. And because uh, I just turned 18, and I was like, I'm 18, I, I'm saying, no, you can't make me. And she was like, well, actually, legally. We can, yeah. Oh, I was so angry. Um, so I went on the waiting list, and um, about a, a week later, my yeah. name came up, and I had a bed. Um, so that was my first hospital thing. So they, they had a special eating disorder program mm-hmm. in that hospital, uh, but, it, like, it wasn't very good. Um, anyway, then, like, nine weeks later, I was out of that, and then... It's a very long story. I don't know if you want, if you want to hear all of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you're happy to share that, that's absolutely fine. Okay. Well, so, yeah, I got out of, yeah, hospital a bit over two months and straight away I wanted to lose weight. Um, mm-hmm. So then for the next few years, it was like, it was in between me having some control of my meals and mum and dad having control, mm-hmm. um, which was horrible because I was starting uni. And yeah. then at one point they gave me, they said I could have a month to show them that I could hold my weight doing meals all by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I 
lost weight straight away. I just lost as fast as I could. And so essentially the, the hospital uh, admission was not very helpful. No. Or yeah, what, what can you say about that? How did you find it really in terms of um, helping? Some things were helpful. Like we had groups each, like group therapy each mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. um, some of the therapy groups were good, but mm -hmm. most of them weren't. So like I found art therapy helpful and there was yeah. one with a psych that we did, but the rest were like, there was this weird one called me and my family that like no one got anything out of. And we mm -hmm. all just came out of it really confused. <laughs> and the group therapy wasn't, I felt it was very surfacey because there was a group of us. Yeah. So we couldn't go into anything deep. And I just assumed that it was like, that it was a, a fun, like a cost thing that they couldn't give us all individual therapy, which like it, it probably was. Um, it, it probably is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we had the group meals that were monitored and then like we had to rest after meals and stuff. But it was, it was pretty much like the groups were pretty much just to fill the time, I think. Mm -hmm. Just that. And also just kick a box to be like, yeah, we're doing therapy. I did, did find. Did, did you feel yeah. that the group based aspect was not very helpful for you and would you have preferred a single appointment with somebody or yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely um which i know is common for autistic people but that, yeah i don't think a lot of the other people got much out of the groups either though did, did you get occupation therapy sessions we we did as a group but mm -hmm. it still felt very surfacey like yeah uh, like oh, we did meditation sometimes another time we like gave ourselves manicures it was, I was like, why are we doing this? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I did find uh, it helpful talking to the other people in the group sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was, there were some things that I, I just felt made me, you know, so alien. And when yeah. other people would say the same thing, that made me feel, you know, less like a, a freak. So that, that was nice. Yeah. But in general, it was, I mean, it got me used to eating again. Yeah. But, but like no one was there to help deal with the anxiety about weight gain. Mm -hmm. um so there was one time when like the psychiatrist used to come do the rounds of the ward in the afternoon and I was feeling quite down because my weight had gone up more than usual that day so I got weight every morning and he came in and was like how are you going and I just kind of said yeah fine because like there was no point actually telling him anything um mm -hmm. and my grandparents were with me and my grandma was like oh she's feeling depressed and um and he was like oh why is that I was like, what do you think? Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, my weight went up a lot this morning. And he was like, oh, that's good. And I was like, yes. Um, and he yeah, said, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll double the antidepressants then. And I was like, right, okay. What about talk therapy then? I mean, yeah, I yeah. mean, medications have a role, but it shouldn't be the entire program, I feel. Yeah, yeah. It, I was, it was just, oh, it was oh, so stupid. Anyway. That was what he was like that. Yeah, he that guy's a bit infamous now for being for like what a terrible job he did of um, mm -hmm. heading up that program anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a few years after I no two years after I got to the hospital, um, I, my weight dropped heaps. And so mum and dad did Maudsley mm -hmm. with me. Um, but I was like 2019. 19 at that point and so really Mozri is is a therapy program essentially that has been adapted um to meet autistic people's needs but it's it it has been it has been criticized by autistic people so yes right i didn't realize it had been adapted um i mean the one the approach i took was yeah. not adapted yeah um and also like it's usually for 
young adults and I was at uni so like mum and dad were coming in to have lunch and morning tea and afternoon tea with me and like only one of my friends knew at uni that I had an eating disorder and I didn't want other people to know because yeah yeah so I would like want to meet mum and dad in the car so no one would see and they thought that I was being secretive because like the eating disorder wanted to hide stuff yeah there was like a lot of miscommunication and lack of communication there and they didn't they didn't realize that I still had a whole heap of self-esteem and all that stuff going on they thought that it was just a neurological condition for me by that point um Mm -hmm. I guess because I hadn't really spoken to them about it like when it when the disorder started I had chronic fatigue and I was feeling sick all the time when I was at school but they they thought that like you know now everything's better now you're at uni chronic fatigue's gone you know we're just got to rewrite those neural pathways so anyway Maudsley went on for a while until eventually I'd had enough and I just moved out one day mm-hmm. when no one else was home and the next month or so were very stressful as they tried to make me come back home yeah anyway uh the next few years I kind of just spiraled gradually spiraled down like I was doing okay for a bit and then mm-hmm. I went to Hobart to finish my degree and Right, what what is your degree in? Um, music. I'm a violinist. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I heard that OTC people are really good with music, especially um, perfect pitch. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't have that. Oh, it depends on my mood. It's it's a weird yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a guy at uni who was, is autistic and his perfect pitch is yeah. like insane. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but because like I was in Hobart for three years, I think, because there was like mum and dad weren't there living with you know other people I had like the whole OCD money fear of spending money came in out like I wasn't buying myself enough groceries yeah my weight dropped heaps and it's super cold there and I felt it all the time so at um, that time your, your eating disorder behaviors were not necessarily driven by body shape insecurities more so by OCD thoughts do you think um I think it was a bit of both yeah um so at first it was like little habits that slowly became worse mm-hmm. and like I wasn't trying to lose weight but once I ate less for maybe a few days just because of not being hungry I would be scared to then eat more the next day in case I yeah. put on weight mm-hmm. um, but then like when I did see the number going down I felt good about it so yeah it's it's but, kind of a cycle and you bring in a lot of different factors in there and it's yeah yeah there was a lot going on it was really stressful um and just like living with other people as an autistic person undiagnosed it was just so stressful and navigating all that stuff anyway um, mum and dad kind of wanted me to go back into hospital for most of the time that mm-hmm. i was there um but i resisted um and like did, did you see a gp I did, yeah, and she was great. Okay. Um, and she weighed, she started weighing me, and I was seeing a psych there as well, but I think I didn't understand everything that I needed to work through either. So we mm-hmm. were kind of dealing with surfacey stuff, and a lot of the psych sessions was just like her trying to convince me that, or like me complaining about mum and dad hounding me about eating more, and her trying to show me their side of the story, and me being like, yeah, I know that but blah, blah, blah. And so they were just like really unhelpful. Yeah, invalidating, yeah. Yeah, I think she, I mean, she wasn't trying to invalidate me, but we just weren't dealing with the right issue. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't know what I needed to talk about 
really I think I was more still in the space of like it was kind of me against mum and dad and like yeah I wanted to get better but more of me was scared to put on weight and was angry at them for trying to force impose their own views on me (laughs) I think yeah anyway and then I finished at Hobart and I came back to Perth and continued getting worse I kept on like thinking that each thing was like going to make me better so I went to Europe um to do some auditions and stuff and they were really worried about me going but I was like no it's gonna help me get better because I won't have all my rigid routines and and stuff I'll you know be shaking everything up but instead my eating just got worse because I was scared to spend money on food yeah Yeah. anyway and then it was in 2017 I started talking to like a peer support kind of person yeah and yeah and then one day she said I I can't keep on working with you and until we get you medically checked out because I'm worried Mm -hmm. about you know so she took me to the emergency at the hospital she like had to get the ECG and stuff and I think I said I knew my BMI was below the threshold but Mm -hmm. um I knew that they changed the criteria for forced admissions um so I was like oh but if my bloods and stuff are fine (laughs) then I won't I won't need to go in and so I was like holding on to that and then I asked her I said you know like how long will I have to stay in if they make me and she said oh you know just until you're stable and I was like oh a few days like surely that will be all um she was really like vague I think she was deliberately vague about it um so anyway we went to emergency um and they made me stay um and yeah each time I kept on thinking it was only going to be a few days but like ended up being a five-week admission yeah, because most programs, I mean, most hospitals, they won't let you leave until you show them that you can eat for several days in a row. Right. See, I was I was compliant from the beginning um, because I'd had kind of a, a epiphany a few days before about recovery because um, mm-hmm. I'd always felt that I didn't deserve to recover I always felt that recovery would be like giving in so other people would talk about you know having um a reason to recover like they wanted to go to uni or train for marathon or I don't know they'd found something to work towards but I was always like yeah but I'm still doing my music and stuff like yeah it's a a real struggle but um but I'm still doing it and if I had Mm -hmm. enough willpower I'd be able to keep on doing it I just need to like be stronger with myself and then I read a quote what did it say so oh there is a greater happiness something about accepting myself for who I am. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I'd already proven to myself that I could starve myself Mm -hmm. and that actually trying to recover wouldn't be giving in because I knew like if I just let myself go, I would keep on doing this until I killed myself. And so I'd proven that to myself. So then I felt that I could allow myself to recover and that it wouldn't be giving in. Um, and that was a huge shift in thinking. Yeah. I remember trying to explain it to my dad a few days later and he was just like, him with his healthy mind was like, what? Like, why did you think you had to? Um, yeah, so because I'd had that thought, I was compliant from the very beginning. I was eating all my meals. I was like, I'd st- I started reading, um, what's her name, Carolyn Coston's book as soon as I got in and was like working through it very diligently. Um, but they still, they just wanted to keep, my weight they wanted to get my weight up um 
but they were also really cagey about when I could come, when I could be discharged. Mm-hmm. And I think they were deliberately because I was like, when can I legally like can I discharge myself yet? And the nurses were all like, oh, I'm not sure. You'll have to ask the doctor. And the doctor like kept on dodging the question, and they kept on telling me I was a voluntary patient. And I was like, but I'm not. And they were like, no, no, you, but you chose to be a bit. And I was like, yeah, well, only because you would have forced me otherwise. And we kept yep. on having this circular conversation. Anyway, so they made me stay in until I got above a certain weight. I don't know. I was blind weight. Yeah. And then I was discharged. And I was still very positive. Um, was the admission that time more helpful than the other one? Or was it pretty much the same in terms of it, impact it had on you? Yeah, it was actually more helpful. But I think that's because I went in with such a positive attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, I was kind of positive um, because like, because my GP had been so positive about the program in the first hospital, mm-hmm. I thought that they would have like a magical way of changing my thinking that would yeah. make me not feel guilty about eating. And I like very quickly learned that that wasn't going to happen. But this time when I went in, I knew what it was going to be like. Um, and I had changed my thinking. I was feeling positive about putting on weight. I knew it would be hard. And, but it was it was a completely different setup to I was on a medical ward. So I was in a room by myself, which for me worked better in hindsight. Like that makes sense. Um, and I, I have the same, like I can relate because I, f- I find medical wards um, more suited for autistic people than than actually the group based things yeah. uh, because you get to eat alone. And, and this is a very important thing for me, um, eating with other people like it's such an anxiety driven thing for me so it, it makes it really hard to engage in a program in the first place whereas on a medical ward you just eat alone and it's fine yeah so like I had nurses watching me eat in the medical yeah. ward which was tricky but the first time with the group there was this really weird dynamic where yeah it was timed yeah and some people were really anxious to eat quickly and get out of that room and others of us like didn't want to appear greedy or wanted yeah. to prolong the experience but then like you had to make sure you finished before the half hour mark but you didn't want to be the last one eating because everyone was watching you and like everyone I can totally relate to that it's amazing yeah yeah it was it was I thought I was the only one thinking that way but I was like am I gonna no I cannot finish first I cannot finish last I have to be in the middle then you look at how others are eating and then you eat based on that and yes horrible yeah it's so it's so much anxiety like eating is hard enough um, so like my, my meals were timed in hospital the second time, but that like I didn't have all these other people um, to to deal with. Exactly. Um, yeah. Having the nurse special was not as tricky as I guess people might think. It's actually helpful most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's what I thought. Like being was, well, that's true. But just like having someone there was, I I found that a bit stressful. But also, I just ignored them as much as I could and just read my book so I didn't yeah I didn't have the pressure of talking to them except for some of them I don't know if you had this but like some nurses just didn't take the hint that you didn't want to talk exactly Um, and they kept talking and then um, I got some uh, unsolicited advice as well like why don't you just eat oh my god I didn't think about this before now I'm cured yeah yeah thank you yeah I had this one nurse who was like trying to give me this inspirational speech um, one night luckily she was my night nurse otherwise because luckily I could just sleep for all of it. She had no, she walked in and when they told her I was um, an eating disorder patient, she was like, she just looked at me and she said, you're beautiful. And I was like, oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> and then she spent like the next hour telling me about her own eating disorder. Oh my God, um, no. 
yeah, yes. She she told me that she had binge eating disorder and like she had the opposite of body dysmorphia. So she saw herself smaller than she was. Then she told me her BMI and her clothing size. Oh, yeah. that's so inappropriate though. Yeah, yeah. And I was telling a nurse, another nurse the next day, um, and I was, I thought it was funny. Um, but she was horrified and she was like, do you mind if I go and make a report on this nurse? Because this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that's... I mean, there, there's a line. I mean, it's fine to say that you have lived experience to a patient just to make them feel more relatable and, and, and at ease. But at the same time, just don't overshare either. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a fine line. But yeah, like sharing yeah. to that, that extent, it's not appropriate. Yeah, like telling me numbers and stuff. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, and then she messed up my feed during the night as well. Um, actually, I did want to talk about something. <laughs> Sorry, um, I had the NG tube yeah, and absolutely. I had so much pain in my throat. Um, yeah. And everyone was like, oh, it'll go in a few days. But it never did. And yeah. I've been wondering if it was an autism like sensory thing, but I haven't been able to find much. I've um, had the same issue, like you have a sore throat and it never goes away really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird feeling, and and I, I was told the same. Like it's just gonna go away, it's gonna ease, it's gonna fade, but it never did. And it was yeah. always, it's not like real pain, pain, but it's like very pronounced discomfort. Right, I was with pain, pain, and I couldn't talk for about a week. Well, yeah, um, that that's worse than I experienced, but yeah. Yeah, and also none of the doctors believed me. They thought I was mm. trying to get the tube out, so they gave me painkillers. The nurses could see how much trouble I was having just swallowing. I was like, this yeah. isn't helping. Like, I can hardly eat. Um, yeah. And like, But then, like, after a few weeks, they said, we're going to have to, like, cut back on the painkillers because you might become addicted to them. I don't know what it was. Yeah, so they just didn't believe me the whole time. And the, and also the whole that's time. That's not very helpful. Yeah, that's, no. that's medical gaslighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Thank you. Um, I mean, I understood where they were coming from. Like, obviously, no one wants the tube in. But I was saying, like, I will drink these extra drinks you can wake me up during the night if you want me to be fed 24 7 i'll drink them just get this tube out of me mm-hmm. um anyway but they didn't so the first chance i i had they I, they took it out um when they finally offered it to me mm-hmm. yeah so so you had quite a extensive experience in in hospital um with the tube in um what do you wish mental health professionals knew about neurodivergence in relation to eating disorders that would have made your hospital admissions and um even the help you receive from your gp better or improve definitely like not having the group sessions mm-hmm. um and like more more individualized treatments like I mean so I thought everyone told me that this was just the eating disorder talking but I thought I just needed to take things slower in terms of introducing new foods and breaking all of my rules at the same time but you know I've read that other people feel the same that we just need to go slower with it because those rules are so much deeper ingrained Mm -hmm. for us and like actually the last year or so I've finally had the chance to do recovery my way, like try and do it slowly. Mm-hmm. And it's actually like, this is the most success I've had ever. I guess that's proof it does actually help. I mean, I've read about the Peace Pathways thing where they do all those games that like mm-hmm. challenge. That seems to be working for other people. I did a few myself, but I didn't find them 
Yeah, peace pathway is, is criticized by some autistic people. So, I mean, some of them, they, they find it helpful, but others may not. Um, so, yeah, I think it needs to be improved, obviously. But we, yeah. we shall see what, what the future holds. Like, yeah, I think you answered that question with regards to improving the healthcare system. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, add about that? I think it's a really hard one. Um, yeah. I think that there are some things that are like, some things are eating disorder things, but some are autistic things. Like, I like eating ice cream with a small spoon and yeah. other people use a dessert spoon and I, I don't want to. And like, when I first voiced that preference, um, my parents thought it was an eating sort of thing because I wanted to like have smaller mouthfuls or whatever. But it, like, if not, I just don't want a spoon that big. Yeah, um, I have the same thing. I, I, I eat soup with a small spoon. <laughs> yeah, I hate soup spoons. You have to like make your mouth so wide to... I know. Um, yeah. Terrible. I don't understand so people who do that. They're psychopaths. Strange <laughs> <laughs> neurotypicals. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think just a lot of like rules and preferences around food. To yeah. be honest, I haven't like... Well, maybe I'm just unaware of it or used to it, but the whole sensory thing in hospital like dim lights and stuff. I haven't noticed yeah. that being a problem for me, but again, it's hard to know um, like what I've just gotten used to and like if I like think that fluoro lights are annoying because surely everyone thinks that, but like how much I find them annoying, I don't know. What about noise and sounds? Do you experience that as well as distressing in hospital settings? Um. Not, not in the like. I don't think I found it any more distressing than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, again, it's hard to judge, but yeah, I don't, I didn't find it confusing or stressful. I kind of found it entertaining. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there were, there yeah. were all these old people across the hall from me that were always being naughty, and, like, <laughs> throwing their phones at the nurses and stuff. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I can really during that. the night. Yeah. <laughs> And then, um, like, screaming for breakfast at 7 p.m. and things like that. Oh, no. <laughs> I heard, like, there was one night this nurse was like, George, sit down, back into bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've experienced the same kind of things. It's uh, it's entertaining, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it breaks it up. Yeah, more definitely. So on on the more personal level, what helped in your recovery journey on on a more private, not necessarily medically or related to um, contact with the healthcare system? A lot of it has been talking things through with family and friends, mm -hmm. um, and just like taking the time to to realize all of the things that contributed to the eating disorder starting. I think like it wasn't until it was like one day after Christmas in 2019, I um was, I, I realized how much self-loathing I had inside me that had like gradually built up, but I'd gradually squashed it. And I, I wasn't aware of it um, until that day. And As it relates to masking, you think? Um, I think some of it was, yeah. So like all the times growing up when I'd felt different and hadn't known why and felt that I was like, there was something wrong with me. I was defective, yeah. awkward. Um, so that was part of it. Also just how that I felt, um, disgusting, like physically, mm -hmm. um, and you know, any sort of 
wish to eat for fun or pleasure was like I always just felt that it was me being greedy and and gross Mm -hmm. um so like realize realizing that and voicing it made me able to like start working through it um and there would yeah just like finally having ongoing one-on-one therapy um helped me to uncover a lot of things that I hadn't realized had contributed to the eating disorder starting and like a lot of that was autism stuff um yeah like feeling that no one liked me and stuff and then thinking oh you know if I'm thin they'll like me because like thin privilege absolutely exists we can pretend it doesn't but like yeah weight um, stigmized is is atrocious and it needs to go obviously yeah yeah and surrounding myself with more of that stuff as well um like I, a friend a few years ago told me that she'd been following some people on instagram who were like pro like healthy weight like recovering from eating disorders and starting mm-hmm. to get into that community um and like there were a heap of things that i grew up being taught in school um that i have only recently learned isn't true like that I thought it was only very, very few people that didn't fit in the you know, the healthy BMI range. And, you know, it's only in the last few years that I've learned that that's not true. Like a lot of people are outside it. Yeah. Um, so that's- BMI is not a good indication of health in general as well. I mean, you can be very, very sick with your eating disorder and still your BMI might be above the threshold. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, that kind of, like just basic facts um and uh i guess the body neutrality this is something i've been thinking about the last few weeks is like when i was oh for a lot of the time that i've been sick people have said oh you know when you recover you know you'll love your body which i think is harmful for two reasons like first of all who even loves their body even if they've never had an eating disorder yeah like most people even models hate hate it and also it makes so many people scared to recover because and i know for me and other people i spoke to like we were scared that we would feel so comfortable with ourselves that we would just never stop eating and then we would gain heaps of weight and from an eating disorder perspective like in that brain space that was a terrifying thought so we're like we never i don't want to be that comfortable with myself and then like we're scared to recover whereas i think yeah like it's more realistic to be like no you probably won't love your body um but like thinking of it from a neutral perspective which is like what I did when I was younger like I didn't think about how I looked Mm -hmm. I just like went about my day um yeah I think that's a big which like that whole movement's making a I think body neutrality has has some some good stances there and I think it's it's something to look forward as well because obviously no one really entirely loves their body or hates their body you're always within that like spectrum but you're not like in the same space all the time because it it it, it has so many factors involved such as environmental factors contextual factors society factors and even like your mood might involve uh, influence over over how you feel about your body. So it's not like you can either entirely hate it or entirely love it. You're always in between and sometimes more on one side or the other. But neutrality should be something to aim for in general, I think. 
yeah. So what advice would you give other autistic people who are struggling with eating disorders? Oh. <laughs> it's a tough one. Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, uh, I think that I've found like reading other people's whatever blogs, um, writing like YouTube things, mm -hmm. especially as someone who's late diagnosed, I found it really validating and that has made me feel more okay about myself. Um, yeah. and, and then feeling like there's not something wrong with me, which then feeds into feeling a bit more okay about makes me feel a bit more that I don't maybe need to be thin to be like, or it, it, yeah. it reduces the self-hatred anyway, yeah. um, which has a kind of positive effect over other things. Um, yeah. So peer, peer support has been a, a big factor in, in your recovery, you would say? Yeah. And surrounding myself with people that I don't need a mask. Yeah. With. So mostly autistic people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like once, I think my mum was writing a report to give to the first psychiatrist that did my diagnosis, and um, I remember I was I was doing my my waiting my fifteen minute wait after my second COVID mm -hmm. vaccination, and she sent me this message like, how many how many close friends do you have, and how many are neurodivergent? And I was sitting there counting them out, and I was like, seven out of nine are neurodivergent, and like the yeah. other two have had very like quite extreme mental health conditions so there's probably something there yeah. and like my two closest friends from when I was five um one has since been diagnosed with ADHD and autism mm -hmm. and the other with um borderline personality disorder and bipolar which is like kind of the stepping yeah. stone before an autism diagnosis everybody every every um like female uh, autistic female lay diagnosed has been misdiagnosed with something before and bpd is one of the main diagnoses exactly yeah that's the thing yeah, yeah. yes um oh this is a really hard question because i just i'm still f figuring it out i yeah. i found reading a lot and talking yeah, yeah. to my friends a lot has yeah. helped and and just like taking the time to i think like unpicking so many things from yeah. my past like there were so many things i misinterpreted because like i can't read social stuff yeah um like and i would like i've gone back and asked some people about things like when i was younger whenever i used to um make an effort to like dress up a little bit um if we were going out or whatever and whenever like when i was you know, double digits or something and i would come out maybe wearing a skirt or something and mum mm -hmm. and dad would be like "Ooh," and i always thought they were making fun of me or trying mm -hmm. to discourage me from dressing in a more grown-up way and i don't know i think this is a common thing that when when we can't read the situation out of safety I anyway learned to just assume the worst mm -hmm. um, because that's the safer. Like if you assume everyone's a danger, then if if they are, then then you've got it right. Um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I took their response to be that they were making fun of me or didn't want me to dress up, thought it was like too grown up for me. And so then I just kind of stopped doing that. And like, and then a few years ago, I was talking to my psych about it, and I was like, oh gosh, actually in hindsight, maybe I've got that completely wrong. And so I spoke to mom and dad about it and they were, they were just so sad that I'd felt like that for so long. They felt mm -hmm. for me and yes, yeah, so I was wrong. So yeah. 
like going back and unpicking so many of those things yeah, has helped. So, so much unpacking when you discover that you're new, neurodivergent late in life and then you have to unpack so many self-stigma as well and like internalized shame and hatred. Yes, so much. Yeah, yeah, um, that's yeah, I, that, I have found that helpful. Okay, that's great advice. Thank you so much, Anna, for uh, being on the podcast and I wish you well for the future. Thank you. You too.